Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Welcome to episode seven of Gruesome. I'm Meg, and today my co-host and professional sweet potato, Connie, is going to tell us about a Thanksgiving Day bombing, even though we're a week late from Thanksgiving. Yeah, this is, you know, we're just going to let everyone see that their Thanksgiving, no matter how it was, was not as bad as this. Yeah, plus you all have that excuse to not go see your family and deal with their drama. Yes, This year. So here it goes, everyone. I hope that you guys all had a great Thanksgiving, whether you were in person with your family or virtually, which is like my preference. The holidays typically are my favorite. Granted, they're looking a lot different for most people in this hell year that we're living. But let's pretend for a moment that it's not the year where your neighbors are telling on you if you have too many cars in your driveway. I want you to remember when we used to have normal Thanksgiving. When you'd have a crazy aunt came in who maybe your mom's throwing passive aggressive comments at. Maybe your grandma comes in who wears too much lipstick and kisses you all over the face. Um, Cousins that come over who you only see once or twice a year. Maybe your grandpa is sleeping on the couch between football games. Perhaps there's some family bickering, but nothing too crazy. I'm of course talking about like every family get together back in the 90s because in this decade, I feel like everyone's just on their phones during Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's absolutely true. (laughs) it's like phones are at mine um someone puts on a movie on the tv and then everyone just sits in silence and watches the movie and i'm just like hey guys i thought we were gonna hang out but but we're not we're just like coexisting in the same room and then we're gonna eat someone's food that they cooked right in the 90s we played jenga okay yes uno we We were in the back room with super nintendo Oh, yeah, for sure. Yes, we were just talking about that, Al. Like, your grandma had your tube TV hooked up in the corner. You were rocking out to some Mm -hmm. Nintendo Uh, memories. Uh, Back then, the possibilities for an awkward family holiday were endless. And personally, I would take any of these scenarios. I would take virtual Thanksgivings. I would take the cops being called because you have too many people over in 2020. (laughs) (laughs) I would take any of that over the Thanksgiving case that we are going to cover today. Beautiful. Let's let's, do it. All right. Let's take it back to the evening of November 28th, 1985. Several members of the Blount family gathered for your typical Thanksgiving at the Hilltop Mobile Home Park in the suburbs of Fort Worth, Texas. Joe Blount, Angela Blount, Robert Blount, Michael Columbus, Susan Blount, and Carl Blount were all at the dinner. Blount? Blount? Blount. 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 I'm not good at saying that. I don't know if it's like I tried to say it, but I feel like something in my mouth is broken. (laughs) 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 All right. The Blount or Blount family. (laughs) The human torch was denied. (laughs) A bank loan. Okay. So I'm going to give you guys a brief family tree here. So just mentally picture these people. Robert is the son of Susan and Joe. So Susan and Joe are the parents. Robert 
and Angela are the children of Susan and Joe. Are they adult Carl, children? They are teenage children. Okay. Carl is Joe's brother. Michael Columbus, the only one that wasn't a blount blount, you know, he is Carl's estranged son. They were working on their relationship. They weren't really close. And then, like I said, Susan was the other, Susan was the mom. Okay, noted. Okay. The Blounts had come to North Texas seeking a fresh start from Seattle. Joe was described as a big guy, a skilled mechanic. Um, He was noted to having difficulty keeping a job. Susan is described as being strict and precise with her kids. And their marriage was difficult, to say the least. They were trying to patch things up after a year-long separation. Okay, Um, so it kind of sounds like he was lazy and she was not. Yes. Okay, perf. So they had settled in North Texas. He had, Joe had gotten a job as a mechanic and he came home and he was like, I love this job. You know, this is a home. I'm feeling really good about this. So they started building their life. So fast forward, it's back to November 28th, 1985. The family sat down and ate dinner between four and five. And after dinner was finished, Ray, who is also Carl, it's Carl nicknamed Ray Blount. Oh, okay. So he went home. And around nine, Susan went to lay down while Joe drove Angela, Robert, and Michael to a local convenience store for ice cream and beer. I feel like that happens at every get together back in the, you know, yeah, you gotta 80s do and a 90s. beer run. Yeah. So typical Thanksgiving family activities. While they were out, Susan said that she had heard a knock on the door, but when she went to look, there was no one there. About 20 minutes later, the four Blounts returned home and they saw a briefcase sitting at the door. Oh, in the, and they let, okay. They saw a briefcase at the door of their mobile home. Mm-hmm. It was a mobile home park, right? Yes. Okay. So these teenagers were pumped. They thought that maybe there was like a large sum of money, you know, <laughs> typical you've been watching too much TV type things. Yeah. Look, the sweepstakes came. We weren't here, so they just left it on the porch. <laughs> they just left it on the porch. So they brought the briefcase inside. Gruesome life tip, never do that. Yeah. If, if something's on your porch and you don't recognize it, don't mess with it. Nope, just leave if it. it's not an Amazon Prime box, though if it was and it had like my name and address on it, I was, I'm going to take that box inside. So if you- I shop online so much, I'd be like, well, maybe I did order. <laughs> maybe, maybe I, I did. ordered this briefcase. <laughs> uh, good thing it wasn't a gift. So there was no money. Angela was super excited about what the briefcase might hold. But as soon as the three of them opened the briefcase, the bomb that was inside detonated. <gasps> like immediately or did it have a timer um, like in Die immediately. Hard? Nope, immediately. Oof. The explosion sent parts of the briefcase and its contents flying 2,000 feet a second, about as twice as a fast, about twice as fast as a bullet from a handgun. What? Why why would this? Okay, go. sorry, go ahead. The same blast simultaneously ignited a container of gasoline that was in the briefcase, creating a huge fireball. One of the neighbors that was interviewed said it sounded like a cannon had went off. A government explosive expert would later testify that, quote, an extremely violent weapon designed to kill human beings and it worked to perfection. Whoa. Yes. So that's crazy. Yeah, just like out of a movie, you open it and it's boom. The noise startled Mrs. Blount, obviously, from her sleep in the back bedroom. She thought it was a B-52 making a low approach because they lived next to Carswell Air Force Base. And sometimes they roared overhead, which we used to live by at Air Force Base. And I can attest to that. It's like shaken our house before. 
Oh, is it that crazy? Yeah. Okay. She opened the bedroom door and she was met with a wall of smoke. She walked down the hallway. The floor was so hot that it burned her feet. Yeah. Why do you walk into the smoke? Well, she, her family was in there, her entire family, her, her husband and her, her two kids and her nephew. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. You, you can't tell me if you opened a a door and you knew that your family. I I would be like, oh no, my family. But I might also be like, how am I going to get through this smoke? Maybe I'll go out. Maybe there wasn't like a window or something she could have like crawled out of and walked around or something. Yeah. She peered through the living room and she says, quote, I could see Joe's body. It was lying on the floor in front of the TV burning. So that's her husband. She escaped through the trailer's back door and it was November. So it was really cold. And she's Texas, right? Yeah. But they have, yeah, they have, I feel like sometimes it gets just as cold there. Like it snowed in Louisiana before, before it snowed up here. Oh, okay. Yeah. I always just assume it's always warm. (laughs) I wish. I probably wouldn't live up here if it was. Um, The night was bitterly cold. Like I said, um, she struggled to the front yard in her underwear and found neighbors watching in horror as fire consumed the trailer. And she said she begged them to go inside to help, but nobody could. Yeah, you can't. Like, if you're not willing to go in, nobody else is going to be willing to go in. When she was at her neighbor's house, she called her other daughter. Her name is Sherry. And Sherry still lived back in Washington. And she said, everybody's dead. Joe, Angela, Robert, and Michael, they're all dead. She wasn't entirely correct. Fire crews arrived and officer directed Mrs. Blount to an ambulance. There she found Robert, so her son, Uh lying on a stretcher. And he was alive? His hair was burned off, his flesh was scorched, and his clothes and shoes were melted to his skin, but (gasps) he was alive. Oh, that's awful. The blast had blown him out the door of the trailer. And that's how he survived? Is that he, like, had an exit? Yeah, and the investigator said that the other three never had a chance. Whoa. Ouch. So the big question became, why the hell would someone bomb this family? Yeah, like, and also, who is, you know, who can make a bomb like that? Exactly. Like, now you can Google it, but you couldn't in 1985. No. And I don't recommend you Googling yeah, it now. Yeah, don't Google how to make briefcase bombs, friends. Yeah. You may think that your search history is private. Spoiler alert, it's not. So the first place they started searching was the family itself. They poured over Joe's background because, like I said, he wasn't – he had, like, a checkered background. He had a, a few run-ins with the law. He was not a violent offender, just, like, a few misdemeanors here and there. And their conclusion memo stated – Quote, he had made no enemies and he was considered more or less harmless, meaning there was nothing in his background that would warrant something this violent to happen to his family. Okay, so who else did they go over? So they scoured Carl's, his brother's past. Mm -hmm. They found plenty of unseemly behavior, but nothing that would link him to the bombing. And then they turned to Susan. The one who survived? The like the mom? The wife. Oh, the wife. Okay, yeah. She said every time she turned around, they were pointing fingers at her. She had every kind of question thrown at her. Had I made a bomb? Did I help anyone make a bomb? And they always taped everything to see if she changed her story. And then well, a sheriff said, I see why they would do that. Like, you're the only yeah. survivor. It's they, It seems very convenient. Yes. Um, th- she was asked by a detective whether she had life insurance policies on her daughter and husband. And she said, yes, I have. And he looked like he was looking at her like, I know you did this. And he said, how much was the policy? Now, 
I'm going to tell you this and you're going to be like, what the hell? The policy she had for her husband was $2,000 and she had an $1,000 life insurance policy. And I know it's been like, obviously things have inflated as far yeah. as like the price of things, but that was still not enough to even bury them. Yeah. So she was, was not like- making out with any money. Yeah. So the investigators traced the family's phone calls in the day before the bombing and the records showed calls to friends and relatives, but nothing else. The Fort Worth office of the ATF sent a query to the agency's Seattle office. Um, does any evidence exist regarding possible extramarital affairs? So like they thought maybe she was ha- like she was having an affair and like that was the reason for the bombing. Oh, like her, and they found- her lover came and blew yeah, up their house. The lover. But obviously there was no evidence that existed of that. But she remained the prime suspect. There's interviews where she's saying every night I thought they're going to come in and lock you up. And she would say, what is my defense going to be? I have no defense other than like she didn't do other it. Other than but like I didn't do it. Yeah. So only after she passed a polygraph did the investigation like seem to ease, which we've did, talked about before. Yeah, they don't I'm even not, trust polygraphs anymore. Yeah, I'm like, not I'll big take on a polygraph. They'll be like, no, I don't care. You're not gonna. And she's d- dealing with all of this while she's trying to help her son who was horribly burned during this yeah is he still alive are they still alive yeah they're still alive um so susan and her son moved into a small apartment they put their beds next to each other's because they were afraid of everything yeah that's scary they've been traumatized yeah and they have no idea why someone would do this or, you know, who what the who the target was. And obviously Robert was still recovering from skin grafts and he had horrible nightmares, rightfully so. Poor Robert. And they said that they were sure whoever the bomber was would come back to finish the job. And if a car like while she was out driving, if a car followed her for more than like one or two blocks, she would pull over to let it pass because she thought someone had put a hit out on her. Oh my gosh. But why? Why would they put a hit out on her? She had she was just paranoid because I mean, a bomb blew up in her house and killed her family. And she had no idea why. Yeah. And then after Christmas, so Christmas, about a month after the bombing, her and Robert came home to find a box outside of their front door. (gasps) Uh, nope. Yep. So they called the police, but it was just fudge from church. Like, um, excuse me. Do you exactly. not know like what these people just went through? You're like, oh, just leave a random box in front of their house. It's not like they just opened yeah. a random briefcase and got blown to smithereens. Yeesh. Think it I over. Just say it. Folks. Yeah, that is a shitty thing to do. I understand the sen- the sentiment, but maybe don't leave a package on the porch of someone who just had their family blown up by a bomb. By a random package a on package their porch. Out. Exactly. <laughs> uh, okay. So after all annoying. of this investigation. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. I read that and I was like, what the hell? Come on. So after this, detectives, they searched the family. They searched out. They could not find anyone in the family who would have any. They didn't have anyone that would want them to be blown up. So detectives were like, maybe the bomb wasn't for them. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe the killer got the wrong address. Okay. So they thought that maybe the bomber. I'm. I couldn't find much about this in like this neighborhood where they lived. Uh-huh. But 
their neighbor lived like a few trailers down. His name was Wayland Tim Tortella. He was a jeweler who operated a thriving methamphetamine business from his trailer. Oh, okay. He's breaking bad in it up in there. Yeah, he sold automatic weapons to drug dealers and he was having an affair with a married woman. Jeesh, Tortella. Yeah, yeah. Get it so together, Mr. man. <laughs> Mr. Tortella later testified that he believes that the bomb was meant for him, which probably, I mean, you're not living the most upstanding life. <laughs> Just making meth, having an affair with somebody else's wife, living your scariest life possible, selling assault weapons. <laughs> right? Like just another day. And much later, he would write in a letter, he said, for 14 years, I felt that it was my fault that those three people died. There is a possibility that if I wasn't doing what I was doing back then, they would still be alive. So he's not doing it anymore? I guess. Apparently not. Good for him. Maybe he turned his life around. And it looked very intriguing to investigators. It looks very intriguing to me. But the lead went nowhere. They couldn't link anyone to wanting to bomb him either. Everyone loves this guy. They're giving him everything they want. I'm going to piss you off so much with these suspects because... <sighs> okay. You just always giving do. You, you always annoy I know. me. <laughs> Go on. So, tell me then. <laughs> federal and state agents could not establish a solid motive. They couldn't find a promising suspect and they had an assortment of, as they described, felons, bomb makers, misfits, Satanists, hail Satan, <laughs> narcotic peddlers who they interviewed. And none of them panned out. I don't know why anytime something happens, they're like, it must be the people that worship Satan. Yeah, that's not what they're about, guys. I know. <laughs> Oh, uh, it's fine. I, you know, whatever. So fast forward, it's now March of 1986, and there was an interesting development. A businessman and member of the Optimus and Bass Clubs in nearby, I'm going to butcher this name, Azile, A-Z-L-E. I don't know. A-Z-L-E? Azel? Yeah. Azel. That's what we're going to say. Azel. Okay. Which our Optimus Clubs here in town are great, so that would surprise me. But anyways, this guy's name was Douglas Raymond Brown. He was a former candidate for mayor and the owner of Azel Business Machine Products. He's a man described as an outstanding machinery repairman. Well, he was arrested. He had sold an undercover agent from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the second of the two explosive devices that was in the briefcase. <gasps> what? So this yep. upstanding citizen? Yes, was making them? It doesn't say if he made it, but he was the one who sold it to this BATF agent. Okay. And they were delivered in a form that they hadn't requested a briefcase. <gasps> Uh-oh. The bombs were similar to the one that killed the Blounts. Firearms experts said that detonation would have caused an explosion, then a fire, which is what happened Previously. So did he sell it to him like knowing it was a bomb or did he sell it to him thinking he was going to like blow him up? No, he sold it to him. The undercover agent was like posing like he needed this. Like he needed a bomb. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Explosives and chemicals were also found in his office and home. All right. So there's that. In a concurrent drug investigation, 10 people were arrested for drug trafficking, which is why the Azel police had been watching Brown five months prior to his arrest. 
So he was like the kingpin that you see in TV shows that everybody loves, but is like a bad guy. You're like, you're a bad apple, but you look like you're doing good. Appearance is everything. They were unaware the ATF agents had also been investigating Brown for firearm violations. So these are two separate investigations. Okay. And this guy's coming. <laughs> he's coming under he fire. Ran, yeah, he ran for mayor. Holy crap. It, that's Again, throwing it back. This is going to make you question every person you've ever met. The police believe that his businesses served as an exchange for guns and drugs. So it was like his front. Mm -hmm. However, police chief Ryan Wilhelm told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram that Brown, who was being held without bail, was, quote, one of the last persons I'd suspect. And that he was floored by the coincidence. Yeah, just a happy coincidence. But he was never charged with a bombing. And two days after his arrest for possessing and delivering an explosive device, he was freed on a $10,000 bond. Okay, so, oh, all right. I'm sure you have so more another, to tell me. Yeah, I have <laughs> tons more to tell you. So that, once again dead end but like okay so he's selling these and they couldn't get did they not get where he got it from did they find out he was making them did anything happen with him it never says it just said that like he was arrested and the sheriff was like oh yeah that's suspicious and then nothing ever came from it you think like the sheriff was homies with him or something i cannot say that on record but <laughs> maybe someone could think that okay um following that the atf rated the Bowie, Texas residents. So we're on to another suspect. Okay. Just trailing down the list. The Bowie, Texas residents of a man with a history of trading and explosives. And I don't know what the hell is going on in Texas. And I didn't realize that explosives trading was such a big thing because there are so many people in Texas doing it in 1985 and 1986. <laughs> so many people trading explosives. So many people. They found grenades, gunpowder, and electronic devices used in bomb making. And among these was a roll of gray and white seven-strand copper wires that were similar to those used in the construction of the device used in the blount bombing. But they could find no connection between this man and the blounts. And he was dismissed after being given a polygraph exam. These damn polygraphs. I know. Polygraphs. So then they're taking it back to the trailer park. And one of the neighbors of the Blounts, and he was an admitted drug dealer by the name of Darren Irvin. He appeared on the detective's radar. And they had like kind of looked into him early on, but we're making a full circle. ATF agents picked him up at a biker bar in Lake Worth less than a month after the bombing. Mr. Irvin, at the time he was 22 so he wasn't very old, had rented a trailer at lot two. They were at lot eight, so he's about six spaces away. And again, he also was selling methamphetamine. And what's more, he allegedly had picked a fight with his wife the afternoon of the Blount bombing, and he had fled the scene. He said that she had kicked out the windshield of my truck. She done kicked out the windshield of my truck. Yep. How did you go anywhere then? You just driving around <laughs> without a windshield? Probably it's Texas. <laughs> That's pretty common in Texas. I don't <laughs> I've never been there. Sorry. <laughs> so sorry, he, Texans. Sorry, Texas. We do not mean that. But you guys also do have a lot of explosives trading. So I don't really know. <laughs> so maybe we do. On. We don't want anything to do with you right now. He later goes on to say, so there are bullets all over the yard. The front door of my trailer was wide open. You look in the house and it's ransacked. No wonder they wanted to talk to me, which I guess. That if you pull up to like there's a bomb, you are driving around this trailer park and you see this house that's disheveled, you're gonna be like, Wait a second, something is going on here, something's amiss. 
So the agents took him in and they showed him crime scene photos of the burned corpses. And he said they were real hard asses. And this is Irvin talking, the suspect. Uh They were real hard asses at first. They really thought I had something to do with it. They told me they didn't care if I did it or not. They needed to arrest somebody. Oh, my gosh. You know what? I'm kind of on Irvin's side here. Like, yeah, sounds like kind of a jerk but also like he's not gonna bullshit anyone and once again he was the polygraph comes in he was released after it and he was thinking if he wasn't the killer had his drug business made him a bombing target but that's the second one because we have mr tortella he's like hey i'm dealing meth maybe this is my fault and then this is another one that's like hey i'm dealing meth maybe this is my fault so who in the trailer was doing meth or not doing meth dealing yeah i know but like do you think no one Okay. No one, there's no evidence of any of the Blounts doing meth, dealing meth, or even being involved in that. It really seemed like Joe was trying to get his shit together for his family. Sorry, Joe. Yeah. So he also said, I did have a connection that I was doing business with in Arkansas, but the last time I saw him, he gave me a sack of dope and I didn't owe him any money. So the person that he was like doing business with, he's like, no, we're on good terms, man. Okay. So we're going to go to the next suspect. So another suspect. How many have we gone through now? We're on three. Oh, three. Okay. Three. Well, wait. One, two, maybe four. Three or four. Let's go to the next one. And this was supposed to be the most promising suspect, which I don't know if that's a good thing. (laughs) But he was 15 years old. Oh my gosh, this is not your most promising suspect if he's 15 Mm -hmm. and like, how is he getting these sophisticated bombs that can blow up? I don't know. Go on. He was a classmate of Angela and there people had said that she, he like was trying like baking advances and she was like, nah, not having it. And it pissed him off. Okay. And again, Satan comes in because friends said that he had a violent hothead who boasted of worshiping Satan, which stop using this is like, I mean, there are some people who are like Satanist and devil worshipers, if that's the way you want to say that do like are sacrificing to the dark Lord, but not everybody is doing that. Yeah. The Satanism is not, Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to just do it because I didn't want to, because I didn't want to make a deal about it. So the church of Satan and Satanism is not a bad thing. They believe that like, if you think about like the story of Adam and Eve, Mm -hmm. that him telling them that the apple that they should eat the apple was him giving them the choice and so now they live their lives according to like being able to choose and you know that being a good thing that they did that you know does that make sense yeah it's like a very like brief vague explanation for it but I am not personally a Satanist, but I have friends that are, and they're all, well, they're all very nice, and they all do, like, a lot of charity work, and they're all very, like, community conscious, and this goes back to last week with, like, the witches, voodoo, voodoo, (laughs) and it's like, you don't, you get such a bad, people get a bad taste in their mouth because of, like, one person who happened to be a Satanist who did bad things, and then it's like, oh, everybody is this guy. You can't just use a religion as like the whole group is bad. That's not you can't do it. Yeah, I know. It's just you know, it's been <laughs> demonized. <laughs> <laughs> Dead on. All right, seg- segue so, over. <laughs> Mikey Huff was a burglar and a drug user and anonymous callers called ATF and told him that Mikey had bragged about detonating the bomb and his said that his stepfather had found pieces of a bomb in his bedroom. 
the stepfather also said that there were two mouse traps, Victor mouse traps. It's the same type that was used that triggered the blout bomb. Oh, okay. had been yeah. So when we had say that this was like a sophisticated bomb, it was actually put together with like a thing of mouse, mouse tra- traps yeah. and Copper like wires a- and mouse traps and gasoline. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's not that it's not like i mean it's more sophisticated than i could probably do it was probably, probably like do, a briefcase but. from the salvation army it was it wasn't our money yeah. but even with all this evidence investigators still couldn't make a case against the and 15 so, year old either against the 15 year old okay so at this point 11 years pass oh my gosh this has been 11 years of them trying to figure this no out? no no. <laughs> no at this point the next part of the story 11 years has passed okay Susan and Robert leave Texas. They're like, forget this place. It sucks. Nothing good happens here. We're going back to Seattle. And they thought that the murders and the bombing would never be solved because there was no evidence anywhere. There was no, it's not like they had some smoky gun. They had the way the bomb was made, but with clearly with all the suspects that they went through, it didn't matter if you had pieces of how the bomb was made. They weren't making any connections anywhere. Yeah. And federal authorities were still saying, yeah, we're working on it. But they hadn't publicly been like, yeah, we... This case is dead. Okay. So that happened. They investigated for a while. And then 11 years after it happened, they moved back to Seattle and were just like, whatever. They're never going to solve it anyways. Yep. Okay. And every quarter, I guess, like when there's an open case such as this one, the ATF has like a quarterly report that comes out and it said the same thing every time. It said no further progress has been made on this investigation. So now in 1996, the Oklahoma City bombing happened. Oh, yeah. And it and it prompted a reinvestigation of all of the unsolved domestic bombings. Investigators were like, all right, let's work on this Blount case one more time. Because at the time, this was the biggest unsolved bombing in the country. The Blount case was? Yep. Okay. So a task force of federal, state, and local authorities was uh, once again assembled. The classic cold case investigation in which... You know, every piece of evidence was reexamined as if it was the first time. So they bring all these. Yeah, they bring these fresh eyes in and they're like, we're going to pretend like we're just seeing all this stuff. And they thought that it would go nowhere. The person who was saying this was Mike Parrish. He was the prosecutor for the county and he was assigned to the task force. Okay. And he literally was like, most of these cold cases do, meaning like they go nowhere. So they decided to offer a $25,000 reward and it started, you know, triggering some tips. And many of them told investigators to take another look at Mikey Huff. So task force members started bringing him in. They questioned him repeatedly. Mikey was the 15-year-old. The 15-year-old. Okay. He denied any role in the bombing and he said that they didn't seem to believe him. And he was told that he needed to be spending a lot of time with his kids because he wouldn't be seeing them for a while. Wow, these guys are really like, I mean, I guess they are being investigated for like murdering three people, but like they're just going so hard. Yeah, like, I you, feel we like, just got to arrest someone. You better say like bye yeah, to their kids. I feel like at a certain point they were like, we have to, we have to convict someone. We have to arrest someone. Because even though they've questioned all these people, no one has been arrested. Except for the one guy who was selling the bombs, but he got out on bail. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> And he was being arrested, not necessarily for this in particular. His investigation started as an undercover work, not necessarily saying like, we, we think you're doing this, with, like we think you bombed the blounts. Like he, this was, it was separate and it just happened to be the same materials that were used in the bombing. <laughs> he was just also into bombs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the 
the ATF tapped Mikey's phone. The FBI brought in criminal profiling experts to do a personality assessment of him. Mm -hmm. And a grand jury began hearing testimony from his friends. So they were trying to build this case against him to indict him on these murders. But even if they would, he was only 15 when that happened. Were yeah. they going to like try to try him as an adult? I mean, he was oh, an adult yeah. Now. Texas doesn't. Texas doesn't mess around with that stuff. Okay. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, they're not. They don't mess around. They he was that one of the testimonies said that the woman said that she considered him a psycho and that he said he had a friend that knew how to make homemade bombs. And this friend said that the bomb blew the Blount house up. So this friend is saying that Mikey had admitted it before. Oh, okay. yeah. So they did this big grand jury investigation. But at the end of it, they never indicted him. And today he lives in North Texas with his wife and children. So who said he admitted it? I'm sorry. One of his friends. So they started, the grand jury started hearing testimony from like a bunch of his friends. They were pretty much calling in anyone that knew him. They were looking for someone to give a testimony saying like, hey, you know, we, he said this. And he, they did have someone come in that said that he said he knew how to make bombs and the bomb blew up the Blount's house. But that it never went anywhere. They couldn't cor corroborate it. So, so that was, he was like never the closest indicted. it got was like, yeah, he used yeah. to brag about making bombs. Yeah. So at this point, the task force wanted something, anything that would give them just an idea of what happened to this family. And sitting in a jail cell, a man named Michael Tony was about to give them just that. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So it's 1997 now. We're like 12 years past. It's 12 years after the bombing. And in June 1997, Michael Tony, a habitual minor offender, was in jail awaiting a hearing for a burglary that happened in 1993. And where this was in Texas still? In, so, Texas. in Texas. Okay. In his cell, he was talking to a man named Jack Ferris. And the two men began talking about the bombing, which... I guess it's small talk. I don't know. Like what? Small How talk would you even bring that up? <laughs> hey, uh, you hear about that 1985 bombing? <laughs> 12 years ago? Yeah. So the two men began talking about the bombing. Ferris was then released from jail by telling the Parker County authorities that Tony had confessed to him. Ferris told the authorities that Tony was like, yeah, I did this. That was me. What? Just yeah. this random guy in jail? And he, just this random guy chilling in there with another one. Like, yeah, that was totally yep. me, man. I pulled that one off. Yep. After Ferris told the authorities and keep in mind, he was never on the radar. They didn't know who the hell this man was. I mean, he was like, he did like break ins and like minor crimes. And he's sitting there like, oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. I pulled this one off. OK. And they were like, maybe you did, but probably not. Yeah. They're like, hey, we got to look into you because at this point we don't have anybody. Yeah, that's fair. OK, so what happens? So Ferris told the authorities and the Investigators began to question Tony's ex-wife, who at the time was his wife, like in 1985. Okay. In the beginning, she told the prosecutors, Michael killing people in a bombing? Yeah, no, you're nuts. But Mrs. Tony, well, the former Miss Tony, decided to do some research on the case. So she goes to the library. She starts looking up details about this bombing. And she was like, oh, shit, on Thanksgiving 1985... She was there in the area with Michael Tony and his best friend, Chris Meeks, and they went to the parking lot of a propane supply shop near Lake Worth. Okay. And what happened? Yeah. <laughs> and and like, honestly, like, what why kind of did memory they go is there? that? 
Yeah, like she's like, oh yeah, I remember that exactly. Well, I mean, it is Thanksgiving. Like, yeah, part of you is probably like, why do we have to go to a propane shop? Yeah, she testified that Michael Tony got out of his truck, took a brown briefcase from the truck bed, and disappeared into the darkness. What's the like, several minutes night? Like, what's yeah, the dark. Okay, it was nighttime. Yeah. Gotcha. Several minutes later, because remember the at nine o'clock is when this was like all after nine because at nine o'clock. Susan had went to take a nap. Okay, like yeah, to lay that's down right. for the night. I forgot that it was. I, yeah. Maybe I wasn't listening well enough to the time when you said it. Well, the first time I, I can see that. The first time I said was four to five, but that's when they had dinner. Okay, and then so that she was took the a only nap time. around nine. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. Which I call that going to bed, but <laughs> by taking a nap, I mean I'm going to bed I for the night. night. I took a nap until the next day. <laughs> so several minutes later, he returned without the briefcase. And then they went to the nature center a few miles away where they stayed for, quote, several hours. Why? Because they were high? They were just hanging out. Yeah, they were high. Yeah. (laughs) She's not going to say that. But while they were there, she said that Tony shot a beaver with a rifle, you know, just wholesome Texan things. Poor beaver. She testified that she didn't hear an explosion or sirens and she didn't see anything. Now, keep in mind, neighbors are saying this is close to where... It happened, and neighbors were saying it sounded like a cannon went off. Yeah. So soon after that, they had this. She had testified, like, yeah, this is what we did. He was indicted on capital murder charges. What? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So they were just like, yep, that's good enough for us. Now, his... They had interviewed his best, well, former best friend, Chris Meeks, as well, and he corroborated her story. He's like, yeah, she, you know, he had this briefcase, he left, he came back, we shot a beaver, and, like, they were... Like, that's a pretty wild Thanksgiving. I would remember that, too. Yeah. Now that you mention it, yeah. (laughs) Now, it was no secret that he, Michael Tony, had a rough upbringing, and I mean, like, freaking insane he was abused even at one point one of his mother's boyfriends duct taped him to a chair by his wrist and lit his hands on fire (gasps) oh no his best friend that he yeah his best friend that he grew up with was murdered by a serial killer oh my gosh yep he had an aunt who was raped and murdered and then his mom must not have been great at choosing men because she had another boyfriend who beat the shit out of him with a flashlight like he had gouges out of his hip Jeez, louise like i don't love feeling sympathy for people who also commit murder but that's crazy and that's sad yeah you can always feel sorry and feel bad for the young children versions of these people but yeah, you yeah, don't yeah. have to feel sorry for the people thank they you for reminding me yes i forget that that we can feel sad for them when they're kids but once you're an adult yeah. it's Partially your responsibility to figure some shit out. Take care of yourself. He he was a self-proclaimed jailhouse lawyer. What? What, What's a jailhouse lawyer? He conducted schemes to help people and help himself get special privileges and early release. Like he showed one inmate how to fake suicide by hanging. What? Yeah. So I'm not sure if the guy pretended to be dead or if it was just something that he pretended to hang himself and... The, his mental health was able to get, but this man was released early. Oh my God. Because of, yeah. So at this point, he has his wife, ex-wife implicating him, his ex-best friend implicating him, as well as the, quote, jailhouse confession that Jack Ferris, that we first mentioned. Maybe you should have kept your mouth shut. Actually, I'm glad he didn't, but yeah. Well, he Ferris later recanted and said that 
and this goes back to self-proclaimed jailhouse lawyer, that Tony made it up as a way to get Ferris out of jail, which not very smart, but Michael, Tony was convinced they have no evidence for me. They have nothing to To hold me. Yeah. So he did get, Ferris did get out of jail. And, but police would later say that Ferris wasn't a reliable quote witness because he had changed his story so many times. However, while awaiting trial, the final nail was put in Michael Tony's coffin. What's the final nail? The cellmate of Michael Tony, Finnis Blankenship, testified that Tony told him he was paid $5,000 for the murders. He said that Tony, like he was like a hitman. Okay. That's what this Finnis Blankenship is saying. Blankenship also said that Tony said that the murders were part of a drug-related hit, but the bomb was placed on the wrong doorstep. Wow, not a very so the, good hitman. No, the targets were never the Blounts. His testimony came in for the second phase of the trial, but this helped the jury decide whether Tony deserved to be executed. The testimony showed the jury that Tony had a motive, so he was being paid, so there's the motive. And at the current time, Blankenship was facing two counts of indecency with a child and habitual criminal charges. What? Yeah, so he says that he agreed to testify against Tony in exchange for having the charges dropped. Oh. No. Yeah. Did they drop Once the again, charges so that he would testify against this other thing? Yeah. Oh my gosh. There was no physical evidence that connected Michael Tony to the crimes. But with all of these testimonies, it didn't stop the jury from taking all of them into account. And Michael Tony was convicted of capital murder and he was sentenced to death. <gasps> Has he died? Now. He is dead but now. But wait. Oh. But oh. wait. Ah. There's more. Ah. <laughs> You may think this is where the story ends. You think, hey, after over a decade, the Blounts finally got the justice that they deserved. The bomber is behind bars. He's going to be put to death. But not long after Michael was convicted and sentenced, discrepancies were discovered in the case. What discrepancies? The best friend who was supposed to have been present with Michael and his ex-wife on the night of the bombing was found to have changed his version of events at least four times. And his story never matched Michael Tony's ex-wife until the trial. Oh, and he went on to specifically yeah. today. Okay. He went on to fail a polygraph. He signed an affidavit affidavit in two thousand one recanting his testimony and publicly stated that the events as he remembered them may not have happened as he originally said on the date of November twenty eighth. This truck, remember I said that the ex-wife stated that he grabbed a briefcase from the back of the truck. Okay, yeah. The truck that she was mentioning, the title records show he did not purchase this truck until December of 1985. Now, how can you pull a briefcase out of a truck that you won't own for a month? Was it like from a lot though? Like maybe he had just had it and like hadn't bought it off of someone yet? Nope. Okay. He hadn't bought it yet. Okay. So upon further investigation, so when you are on death row, you are granted appeals like you can you automatically get an appeal so in all the tarrant county district attorney's office was found to have withheld 14 pieces of evidence from the defense that would have exonerated but because they just wanted to get someone they just wanted to get someone the case was turned over to the texas attorney general and the state of texas dropped all charges on december 17th 2008 he didn't do it what oh my gosh so it's so that's why he yeah they have just lead me on for this entire... I just led you on. But wait, like I said, he was... He always tried to... I don't want to say he was like a good criminal, but like he was trying to help Ferris because Ferris had originally said he would die in jail. Like he didn't deserve to be there and he was going to end up dying there because like his health issues. So Michael Tony was like, hey, I can say that I did this 
because he knew that he did it. But he didn't count on a scorned ex-wife to be like, oh, hell yeah, he did it. So did they really and, kill a beaver? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like, I but don't know why that's my thought. But. His other cellmate, Blankenship, that testified about the whole $5,000 and drug hit and all that. He did an interview where it because he got out because of it. And he said he just he also knew he was going to die in prison and he didn't want to. So when the prosecutors came and offered him this story, offered him this deal, he took it. Yeah, duh. Of course they... Ugh. Yeah. So after serving more than 10 years on death row, Michael Tony's conviction was overturned and he was released from prison. So did they have to like pay him for that? Like, because he just sat in there well, for 10 years? But wait, <sighs> there's more. <laughs> So this is a direct quote from Michael Tony. He said, I believe you will see that I've told the truth from the very beginning and that I was correct when I testified that I believe Kim, T Kim which is his ex-wife, is mistaken and Chris Meeks, his ex-best friend, is lying. I believe any intelligent person will see how easy a miscarriage of justice can occur and that one has occurred in this case. It is absolutely transparent that the misconduct of the prosecution team, including the investigators, resulted in the conviction of an innocent man. He goes on to say, I am unequivocally innocent of this crime. I have never in my life been to the Hilltop Mobile Home Trailer Park and am in no way whatsoever connected to the crime, the victims, or anyone else in that area. I have never been there. I didn't even know the place existed until just prior to my trial. The reason there is no evidence is because I am completely innocent. And again, so that was his quote. It's and you asked about... For like a, yeah. I guess he is well, a jailhouse lawyer. Yeah, he's a jailhouse lawyer. And I wish that I could tell you that he did go on to sue because that happens a lot you you know especially like being wrongfully convicted but michael tony was in a car crash one month after his release and he was thrown from the vehicle and he was killed instantly Where one month so he spent 10 years in prison and was and died a month after he was released you know life comes at you fast <laughs> Yeah, like, sorry, that was a war. <laughs> <laughs> Death comes and you so passed. following his release in 2009, the case again became unsolved. The Texas Attorney General reviewed the case, but they didn't say any more about whether they would retry Michael Tony. Well, I mean, they, obviously, they yeah, could at that can. point. He's gone. But they, the type of bomb that was used, whether it's design or it's never been said if it's been linked to any other bombings. And no other, yeah, I was going to say, no other bombing had happened in like any of those areas. Yeah. And if they have if they have evidence or anything like that, it goes there's a lot of cases and we're gonna be covering many where we're like, why the hell if they have more evidence, why are they not holding back? The Trisha Reitler case was like that. Like if they have anything else to say, people aren't saying it. And it's been twenty years at this point. Like, well, thirty years. Yeah. Thirty five years at this 35 point. Thirty five years was eighty five. Yeah. Almost thirty six. Police sources have said that the most likely scenario is that the bomb was placed at the wrong trailer. And it was supposed and so to that go to made Tortilla man, Tortella. Someone, not them. Because, and when you apparently have a whole mobile home park full of methamphetamine dealers, <laughs> it makes, you know, it makes, it makes trying it to hard. find the actual perpetrator difficult. Sheesh. So, but he, Michael Tony, had said many times before his release that he had been in contact with people who knew who really carried out the bombing. And he said that many times, like he had said, like many times that he w wanted to wait until he was released to like reveal these names, but he wasn't, he died. So, you know what? I don't believe him, but I don't either. Cause like if he would have, he was in there for 10 years, if he had just 
found out, he would have been like, here's what you need to go look at. And like, yeah, he if could I have, was sitting on death row. And he's a, if he's a jailhouse I, lawyer, he would have known that. He would have known who to contact to say, hey, I actually know who really did do this. Exactly. So through all of that, an hour of <laughs> you leading me on, thinking leading you on. Solved and I was not aware not. that it was not going to be solved. <gasps> but yeah, so appreciate your awkward family Thanksgiving because you could have gotten never blown up on accident by a, a wrong address. It's awful for Susan and Robert because knowing that I'm not saying it makes it any better if you think that the the target was your family, but when you're like my entire family was taken from me on accident because some dumbass put the wrong the briefcase at the wrong place, like that's awful. I can't even imagine. Yeah, that's ugh. I was really buying it too. I was like Maybe he really is a hitman and he just needed some money. But then I and then I was like, well, who would put a hit on this family? And I was like, wait, no, it was the wrong trailer. That really took yep. me. You really took me through through a game board on, on that one. You took me on an adventure, an emotional roller coaster. An emotional. You're like, wait, this guy's it. Mikey Huff is it? Nope. The mayor with the arms dealer. He's it. Nope. I think we should all just agree that we're not moving to this town. Yeah. That- <laughs> This reminds me of a TV show. And like when I first started reading about it, I was like, there is no way that this happened. And then to end it with like, yeah, he was released after 10 years on death row and then he died a month later. Oh, no. Like, holy shit. Man. Ah, but that's it for me. Well, sorry. Sorry, Robert and Susan. That's a bummer. Yeah, huge bummer. It's, uh, I had not really looked into a bombing before, though. It's a whole different type of. Yeah, well, they don't happen very often. No. We'll have some pictures of the victims and some of Michael Tony and whatever else we have on our Instagram. So you can check it out there. Next week, Meg has a crazy case. Yep, I do. It's another one. It's a little, it's a little too close to home for me. We're going to make it happen. Ah, 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 murder, murder. That's it for today. Thank you all so much for listening to Gruesome True Crime with me, Connie, and Meg. We appreciate every single one of you. We truly do. If you actually like us and you're not just trying to seduce and murder us, you can follow along or see extras from the show on our Instagram at Gruesome Podcast. Or if you want to tell us our skin would make a nice lampshade, or if you have follow-up questions about the episode, follow the form on our website, gruesomepodcast.com, and email us. We love hearing from you guys. You can listen to Gruesome at the links listed on that website, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you normally get your podcast fill. Thank you again. Be sure to subscribe. Check your back seat before you get into your car. And remember that on Wednesdays, we're We're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye.